0: This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare care providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision-making and judgment of a qualified healthcare care professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare care provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Sedatives and Procedures by Gregory Holman in collaboration with the Society for Pediatric Sedation.
1: Welcome to the Society for Pediatric Sedation's online provider course on sedatives and procedures. At the end of this lecture, students should be able to explain the concept of the therapeutic window be able to explain and apply pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic principles to sedative drug choices in order to achieve the therapeutic window. In addition, students should be able to categorize the different types of procedures requiring sedation in children, based on the degree of discomfort associated with the procedure and the degree of immobility needed to successfully complete it. Students should also be able to formulate a systematic approach to procedural sedation that promotes safe and effective sedation and demonstrate knowledge of the pharmacology and uses of common sedative drugs. This lecture is divided into three major subsections or modules. The first part deals with the concept of the therapeutic window and pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic principles needed to choose a sedative agent. The second will address the procedural characteristics that come into play when choosing the most appropriate sedative agent. And finally, we will discuss specific sedative agents commonly used for pediatric procedural sedation.
2: One of the most important concepts in pediatric procedural sedation is the therapeutic window. The therapeutic window is the range of the plasma drug concentration that is both safe and therapeutic. That is, concentrations of drug within the therapeutic window achieve the desired clinical effect without causing adverse effects. Concentrations above this range would typically result in adverse events such as apnea or airway obstruction. Concentrations below the therapeutic window result in inadequate clinical effects. Inadequate clinical effects might be, for example, a child who reports severe pain during an invasive procedure. In order to achieve the desired clinical effects, we must choose the right type of drug for the procedure at a correct dose. Similarly, the drug must be given at the correct time in relation to when the procedure is being initiated. Collectively, these properties are derived from the drug's pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic profile. The pharmacodynamics of a drug is what the drug does to the body and includes both the desired clinical effects and adverse clinical effects like respiratory depression. The pharmacokinetics of a drug is what the body does to the drug and includes the onset of action, offset of action or duration, distribution and elimination. In order to optimize patient safety, sedative effectiveness, and procedural success during procedural sedation, the drug's pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic profile must be well understood. From a pharmacodynamic standpoint, sedative drugs decrease activity, moderate excitement, and calm the patient. The term sedative can be thought of as an umbrella term for a number of different types of drugs. Sedative drugs can be categorized based on their predominant desired clinical effect. Sedative hypnotic drugs produce drowsiness and promote sleep. Examples of sedative hypnotic drugs include chlorohydrate, pentobarbital, and propofol. Drugs with sedative anxiolytic properties relieve apprehension and fear due to anticipation of a specific event. The most common sedative anxiolytic drugs used in sedation practice are the benzodiazepines. Following drug administration, sedative amnestic drugs result in anti amnesia by disrupting incorporation of new information and preventing recall of events. Commonly used sedatives with amnestic properties are the benzodiazepines, propofol, and ketamine. Sedative analgesics relieve pain and alter perception of nociceptive stimuli. Opioids and ketamines are sedatives with analgesic properties. Note that sedative drugs often have more than one clinical effect. For example, benzodiazepines have both sedative anxiolytic and amnestic effects. This table demonstrates examples of some common sedative drugs, their mechanism of action and their receptor system, and their predominant clinical effect. Fentanyl activates mu1 and mu2 opioid receptors, primarily producing sedative analgesic properties. Ketamine, on the other hand, inhibits N-methyl-D-aspartate receptors, resulting in a unique sedation state referred to as dissociative sedation. Dexmedetomidine is a central alpha-2 receptor agonist that works by activating central alpha-2 adrenergic receptors, primarily located in the locus ceruleus within the central nervous system. The resulting effect is a cooperative sedation state at lower doses and hypnotic state consistent with natural sleep at higher doses. In trying to illustrate pharmacokinetics, it's useful to envision three empty tanks or compartments of varying sizes connected by hoses or vessels of varying diameter. The central tank represents the plasma circulation. The fast tank represents the organs receiving a large amount of blood flow, the vessel-rich group, which includes the central nervous system, and in this case, the effector site of our sedative drugs. And finally, the slow compartment is the vessel-poor group and represents organs with less blood flow, such as muscle, fat, and bone. Following IV administration of a fast-acting sedative, the drug concentration in the central compartment climbs quickly. After peaking in the central compartment in about 30 to 45 seconds, the concentration of the drug in the central compartment begins to fall as the drug is distributed into the fast compartment. Onset of clinical effects occurs during this phase. After a considerable amount of drug has entered the central nervous system and equilibrated with the central tank, i.e., the plasma, concentrations of the drug fall in both tanks as the drug draining begins to be distributed in the slow compartment. Clinical effects at this time begin to dissipate. Finally, the drug is eventually cleared from the body, primarily by the liver. Another way to visualize the distribution of intravenously administered sedative drugs in the body is to observe the concentration of the drug in the plasma over time. On this graph, the plasma concentration is on the x-axis and time is on the y-axis. Following intravenous administration, there is a rapid fall in the plasma drug concentration as the drug distributes out of the plasma into the central nervous system. This is the time when the onset of a clinical effect occurs. After the central nervous system and the other vessel-rich group organs fill, the plasma levels fall more slowly and slow-filling organs such as muscle and fat take up the drug. Plasma levels drop even more slowly over time as the drug is eliminated from all parts of the body. The concentration of the drug at the effector site is demonstrated by the dotted line. As drug levels climb in the central nervous system, the effector site, there is onset of clinical effect. Time to peak effect occurs when the drug's central nervous system concentration has peaked. Offset occurs when drug levels drop in the central nervous system. Note that the lag time between peak plasma concentrations and peak effector site concentrations is primarily determinant of how fast a drug works. That is, fast agents like propofol have a short lag time. Time to peak effect and duration of action of some of the most common sedative agents used at standard doses for pediatric procedural sedation are listed in the table. Several non-parenteral routes of drug administration exist, each with their own advantages and disadvantages. Listed in order of how fast the onset of action is are four commonly used routes of administration, including their advantages and disadvantages. By inhalation, nitrous oxide is the most common sedative used for procedural sedation. Its advantages include fast onset of action and short duration following discontinuation. Disadvantages include mass tolerance by the child and very young patients may be uncooperative. Intranasal administration has the advantage of fast onset compared to enteral routes and minimal first pass hepatic metabolism. The highly vascularized nasal mucosa allows rapid drug absorption into the bloodstream that approximates parenteral drug delivery. Administration of drug should be in a small volume and be approximately 0.15 to 0.4 mL with a maximum of one mL to avoid saturating mucosal surfaces and having the drug being swallowed into the stomach. However, intranasal administration can be irritating, especially midazolam, and technique is very important in making sure the drug is adequately delivered. Common sedatives administered by the intranasal route include midazolam and fentanyl. Rectal administration results in intermediate to slow onset of action, most similar to oral administration. However, there is potential to bypass first-pass hepatic metabolism by administering the drug more distally in the rectum. Rectal administration has the disadvantage in not being well tolerated in children over three years of age, and is variable in its onset of action. Finally, oral administration probably remains the most popular non-parental route of drug administration, in part due to its ease of administration. Its onset is slow, unpredictable, and first-pass hepatic metabolism is significant. The difference in the time of onset and role of first-pass hepatic metabolism between parenteral versus non-parenteral routes of ketamine is exemplified in the graph. Following intramuscular ketamine, ketamine concentrations in the plasma rise quickly while concentration of ketamine's primary metabolite, norketamine, slowly increase as ketamine is metabolized in the liver. In contrast, following oral ketamine, norketamine is the predominant sedative in the plasma as ketamine is metabolized to norketamine through first-pass hepatic metabolism. Of note, norketamine has only approximately one-third of the sedative analgesic properties of ketamine. The time of onset and duration of action of some common sedatives administered either by the oral or intranasal route are listed in the table. Note that the intranasal administration results in a more rapid onset of action and equivalent or shorter recovery time than oral administration. Prolonged duration of action of ketamine following oral administration may be in part due to ketamine's active metabolite, nor ketamine, following first-pass hepatic metabolism. The next topic of this lecture is procedural characteristics. Procedures can be classified in a number of ways based on whether they are diagnostic, therapeutic, or both. One of the most useful ways to classify procedures is based on the degree of pain or discomfort associated with the procedure. On one end of the spectrum are procedures that are non-invasive or non-painful, like MRI scans or CT scans. On the opposite end are procedures that are considered invasive, like biopsies, fracture reduction, and wound care. A third, less well-defined category is something in between and could be considered distressful or minimally invasive. Procedures like VCUGs and Botox injections may fall into this category. One of the ways of classifying procedures that is particularly useful in choosing the most appropriate sedative drug is by determining both the amount of pain and discomfort associated with the procedure and the degree of immobility or stillness required for the procedure to be completed successfully. Procedures in the lower left box have no or low levels of discomfort and do not typically require high levels of immobility. Examples of procedures in this category are ultrasounds, echocardiograms, voiding cystourethrograms, and Botox injections. For these types of procedures, minimal to moderate sedation would usually suffice. This could be easily accomplished with drugs like midazolam and nitrous oxide. Procedures in the upper left-hand corner have a high degree of discomfort and pain, but high levels of immobility are not necessarily required. Some examples would be Botox with phenol injections, fracture reduction, and wound care. Under these circumstances, using an analgesic such as ketamine or fentanyl would be appropriate with or without an agent like midazolam to reduce anxiety and recall of the procedure. Remember that fentanyl or any opioid used by itself does not ensure amnesia. In the lower right-hand corner are procedures that require high levels of immobility but have minimal to no discomfort. MRIs account for the bulk of these procedures, but also CT scans and nuclear medicine scans are examples as well. Moderate to deep sedation is often required and the child may need to be asleep. Finally, procedures in the right upper hand corner are procedures with high levels of pain and requirement for high levels of immobility. The procedures typically require deep sedation, if not general anesthesia, and may be achieved more effectively and safely by combining sedative agents and taking advantage of the additive or synergistic effects that some of these drugs may have when used together. Replacing the types of procedure in each category with the type of sedative drugs typically effective for these procedures can provide a helpful framework. In preparation for the discussion of specific sedative agents, it's important to match the properties of the sedation to the characteristics of the procedure. There are four key factors or aspects of the procedure that can help in this choice. First, what are the desired clinical effects? This will help you choose the type of sedative drug and match the desired clinical effect with the drug's predominant clinical effect or pharmacodynamic profile. For example, if pain control is the desired clinical effect, drug choices will include sedatives with analgesic properties. Second, how fast are the desired clinical effects onset of action needed? Is this a procedure that needs to be done in a couple of minutes, or is this a procedure that can wait 10 or 15 minutes? Third, how long are the desired clinical effects required? Will this be a brief, painful procedure like a lumbar puncture or be a longer procedure like an MRI scan? And finally, what clinical effects are undesirable or even contraindicated that may be specific for the patient or procedure? This final question may lead the practitioner to avoid a specific sedative agent or class of drugs. Answering these four questions will help the practitioner determine exactly what drug pharmacologic profile they are looking for. Note questions one and four address the drug's pharmacodynamic profile while questions two and three speak to the drug's pharmacokinetic profile. We will now have a discussion of the most common sedative drugs used in pediatric procedural sedation practice. These sedative drugs will be divided into four general classes based on their predominant clinical effect. The first will be sedative hypnotic agents that are predominantly used to promote sleep. Second will be a sedative anxiolytic drug that reduces anxiety and fear in anticipation of a procedure. Third are sedative analgesic drugs used to treat pain. And finally, there will be a brief discussion on the combination of various sedative agents to complement each drug's pharmacologic action and achieve either additive or synergistic effects. First, we will start with sedative hypnotic agents. Sedative hypnotic agents are drugs that are used to produce drowsiness and promote sleep. The most common sedative hypnotics used in pediatric procedural sedation are hydrate, barbiturates, particularly pentobarbital, dexmedetomidine, atomidate, and propofol. hydrate, pentobarbital, and atomidate will be discussed just briefly as their role in pediatric sedation has diminished over time. More attention will be spent discussing the clinical uses of propofol and dexmedetomidine in sedation practice. While hydrate has recently been withdrawn from availability in the United States, its use may continue internationally in those U.S. centers with stockpiles. At present, it is difficult to make a case for chlorohydrate being an important part of any organized pediatric sedation service, knowing it will be increasingly difficult to obtain in the future. Following oral administration, chlorohydrate's onset of action and duration of effect is variable but typically occurs within 15 to 30 minutes and lasts for over 60 minutes. Undesirable clinical effects include unpredictable onset of action and duration. Respiration depression is not uncommon following hydrate administration with up to 5% of patients experiencing oxygen desaturation following its administration. Nausea and vomiting may occur in up to 10% of patient populations. Prolonged sedation is one of the most problematic features of chlorohydrate. In some patients, residual sedation effects may persist into the next day. Pentobarbital is an oxybarbiturate and is the most common barbiturate used for pediatric procedural sedation for non-invasive procedures like CT scans. A substitution at the carbon-5 ring of the barbiturate acid ring confers greater sedative hypnotic activity. It does not have any analgesic properties. Pentobarbital has a long elimination half-life of approximately 24 hours. Pentobarbital's desired clinical effect is hypnosis. Following IV administration, onset of sleep is typically within two to five minutes, and duration of effect is around 60 minutes. Most common undesirable effects include excitatory or paradoxical reactions during induction or recovery and it is reported to occur in anywhere from one to two and up to 10% of patients. Some degree of clinically significant respiratory depression will occur in up to 5% of patients and in which apnea, hypoventilation, upper airway obstruction, and oxygen desaturation may occur. Clinically significant hemodynamic effects are uncommon and much more likely to occur in patients with underlying hemodynamic issues or hypovolemia. Prolonged sedation recovery may be clinically significant due to pentobarbital's prolonged elimination half-life. Residual sedation effects are not common following discharge and include motor imbalance, agitation, and general restlessness. While pentobarbital has been described given orally, intravenous administration is the most common route of delivery. Intravenous doses are typically two to four milligrams per kilogram, given over 30 to 60 seconds, with an average of approximately four milligrams per kilogram typically required to produce sleep. The maximum doses are usually determined to be 200 milligrams. There are a number of different regimens reported in the literature, starting anywhere from one to four milligrams per kilogram per dose. A repeat dose of one to two milligrams per kilogram can be given two to five minutes following the initial dose. In organized sedation programs, Success rates for intravenous pentobarbital for non invasive procedures like MRI scans and CT scans are 98 to 99 percent. Atomidate is an imidazole compound with steroid structure. While atomidate has the advantage of causing minimal cardiovascular effects, its undesirable pharmacodynamic profile, particularly adrenocortical suppression, has tempered its widespread use, particularly in critically ill patients. Etomidate's predominant desired clinical effect is sleep, and it has no significant analgesic effect. Following a single intravenous dose, onset of action is very fast, within one to two minutes, in short duration, not unlike propofol, of approximately 10 to 15 minutes. It has minimal effects on blood pressure and heart rate, but its popularity is limited by a number of adverse events, including significant respiratory depression, nausea and vomiting in up to 5% of patients, on injection and myoclonus soon after injection. Transient adrenocortical suppression occurs even after a single dose and has particularly limited its use in critical care medicine settings. Atomidate is primarily indicated for non invasive procedures of brief duration. It can be used for invasive procedures, for example, fracture reduction, when given with an analgesic like fentanyl. Single intravenous induction doses of 0.2 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram have a duration of approximately 10 to 15 minutes. The most experience with atomidate has occurred in emergency medicine. Atomidate has been used successfully for both non invasive procedures like CT scans and invasive procedures like fracture reductions. Propofol is becoming one of the most common sedative hypnotic agents used in pediatric procedural sedation. Propofol is a substituted phenol in aqueous solution with soybean oil, glycerol, and egg phosphatide. It is a highly lipid soluble drug and has a large distribution and high metabolic clearance. Propofol has a very fast onset of action and allows patients to wake up more clear-headed than most other agents. However, its margin of safety is smaller. The clinical effects of propofol are dose dependent. At low infusion rates, propofol has both antiemetic and anxiolytic effects. Propofol at low infusion rates has significant anti amnestic effects even if the patient is not asleep, not unlike the effects seen with benzodiazepines. At higher doses, typically 75 to 150 micrograms per kilogram per minute, propofol has sedative hypnotic effects, and at higher doses will reliably induce general anesthesia. Perhaps the most unique and desirable property of propofol is its pharmacokinetic profile, which allows it to be given either in bolus form or as an infusion. Due to its high lipid solubility, propofol's onset of action is very fast, within 30 seconds, with peak effects occurring within 2 minutes. Consequently, propofol is easily titrated to clinical effect. Following a single bolus, the duration of the effect is about 10 minutes. Whereas following an infusion, the effects may last up to 20 minutes, depending upon the duration of the infusion. In otherwise healthy patients, respiratory depression is far and away the most clinically significant adverse event seen in children receiving propofol. Respiratory depression generally occurs in one of two ways. Propofol reduces pharyngeal muscle tone and leads to pharyngeal upper airway obstruction in up to 10% of patients. Propofol also results in a reduction in respiratory drive and ventilation response to CO2. Consequently, a significant reduction in minute ventilation and response to rising carbon dioxide levels occur. This may lead to significant hypoventilation and or true apnea, particularly if the bolus dose is large or given very rapidly. Mild hypotension and bradycardia of approximately 10 to 20% of baseline usually occur and typically are not clinically significant. However, propofol should be used very cautiously in patients with hypovolemia, hemodynamic instability or cardiac dysfunction, as these patients may be particularly susceptible to the hemodynamic effects of propofol. Administration of propofol via peripheral IV may also result in injection pain administering IV lidocaine either just before the propofol infusion or mixing lidocaine in the propofol may reduce the discomfort associated with administration. Propofol is a very versatile drug and may be used for both invasive and non-invasive procedures. When used for invasive procedures, dose requirements can be significantly reduced when used with analgesic agents like fentanyl. Propofol can be used either as a bolus for brief procedures or as an infusion for more prolonged procedures. Induction doses typically average 3 to 4 milligrams per kilogram followed by titrating doses of 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram as needed during the procedure. For longer procedures, the induction dose can be followed by an infusion of 100 to 150 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Note that younger children under one year of age require higher induction doses and infusion rates due to a higher volume of distribution and clearance, respectively. Probably the most clinically significant and tricky aspect of propofol administration is the induction phase. During this phase, the patient rapidly falls asleep. Most adverse events occur with propofol during this period. In general, two approaches to propofol induction have been described in the literature. The first is to administer propofol at fixed doses over a specific period of time, followed by a specific titration plan. One example is to use propofol boluses of one milligram per kilogram over 30 seconds, titrated to clinical effect every minute. The second approach uses a constant infusion until the desired clinical effect is reached. One example of this approach is to infuse propofol at one milligram per kilogram per minute until the patient is asleep. In general, whichever way the propofol is administered, the patient will typically go through three phases during induction. The initial small dose of propofol reaching the patient is often associated with a calming effect. As the dose is increased, paradoxical excitement, movement, and crying may occur. In the final phase, loss of consciousness occurs and is accompanied by a change in the respiratory pattern. One of the earliest accounts of propofol use on a large scale for procedural sedation outside of the operating room was a prospective single center study that examined the safety profile of propofol for over 7,000 pediatric procedural sedations. The study examined propofol for a diverse group of procedures, both invasive and non-invasive. Overall, oxygen desaturations occurred in almost 5% of patients, with 2.5% of patients requiring either an oral or nasal pharyngeal airway. When patients were categorized into two groups based on a history of airway problems, patients with any history of airway issues, such as stridor, obesity, craniofacial malformations, or swallowing dysfunction, Both the incidence of oxygen desaturation and the need for airway intervention were significantly greater in the group with airway problems compared with otherwise healthy patients. Propofol is the most common sedative used among institutions belonging to the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium with close to 50,000 sedation encounters with propofol recorded. Within this group, experience with propofol has been reported among a variety of provider specialties including pediatric emergency medicine, pediatric critical care medicine and pediatric hospital medicine. Of note, when compared side-by-side with other sedative drugs used within the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, sedation-related adverse events, particularly respiratory and airway interventions, are significantly more common with propofol than with other sedative agents. Consequently, additional training and expertise should be required for privileging providers to the use of propofol. Dexmedetomidine is a highly selective alpha-2 receptor agonist similar to clonidine in its mechanism of action. By binding to presynaptic alpha-2 receptors predominantly located in the locus ceruleus of the central nervous system, dexmedetomidine inhibits norepinephrine release at the nerve terminal via a negative feedback mechanism. Its clinical effect is unique among commonly used sedatives in that it results in hypnotic effect that resembles natural sleep and has less respiratory depression compared to most other sedatives. Dexmedetomidine's desired clinical effect include an anxiolyzed state sometimes referred to as cooperative sedation and a hypnotic effect that resembles natural sleep. With light sedation, the typical patient is calm and cooperative. At higher doses, dexmedetomidine generates a hypnotic state that resembles natural sleep by EEG. Following induction of dexmedetomidine via a loading infusion, onset of clinical effect to sleep will occur typically within 5 to 10 minutes. Following discontinuation, the duration of effect is typically 60 minutes or greater. Adverse sedation-related events are usually cardiovascular in origin and are typically dose and infusion rate dependent. Transient hypertension may occur initially, particularly with large doses or rapid infusions. This usually occurs within the first 10 minutes of administration and may be accompanied by a reflex bradycardia. Administration of an anticholinergic during this time to treat the bradycardia may result in an exaggerated hypertension. Following this is a decreased sympathetic outflow that manifests as mild hypotension and a sustained decrease in heart rate. These are usually not clinically significant. In some cases, dexmedetomidine can, however, induce nodal block, and thus caution should be used in patients on digoxin or in any patients with an underlying conduction block. Indications for dexmedetomidine are non-invasive procedures like MRI and CT. Initial loading doses of 1 to 2 micrograms per kilogram IV over 5 to 10 minutes are usual loading infusion doses. Maintenance infusions may then be started after the child is asleep at 1 to 3 micrograms per kilogram per hour. Typically induction is smooth, although at times a child may become agitated during the slow induction phase. During this time, a dose of intravenous midazolam may help to facilitate sleep. Dexmedetomidine may have some specific advantages in certain clinical situations. It has less respiratory depression and effects on upper airway caliber than most other sedatives, particularly propofol. Dexmedetomidine has been successfully used for sedating children with autism for non-invasive procedures like MRI. Of note, recovery agitation in this patient population following dexmedetomidine is often minimal. Dexmedetomidine has been found to have little overall effect on the EEG, creating an appearance more of stage two sleep. Consequently, it may have advantages in being the sedative agent of choice for sedating children for EEG. Dexmedetomidine can be given by other routes as well. One of the more common routes is intranasal. When given intranasally, dexmedetomidine's bioavailability is approximately 65%. While it is often tolerated reasonably well and makes a smooth induction and recovery, its onset of action may be prolonged, sometimes taking up to 45 minutes, and the duration of the effect may be longer than one and a half hours. The next set of drugs are the sedative anxiolytics, drugs that are predominantly used to relieve apprehension and fear due to anticipated events. The most common two sedative anxiolytic agents are midazolam and nitrous oxide. These agents usually result in a sedation depth most consistent with minimal sedation. Midazolam is one of the most common sedative agents used in pediatric sedation. Its physiochemical properties make it highly compatible with other drugs. Midazolam is water-soluble in a syringe, yet has a high lipid solubility in plasma. Like other fast-acting sedative drugs, midazolam has a large volume of distribution and clearance. Midazolam has a number of desired clinical effects, including anxiolysis and amnesia. Consequently, it is particularly useful as a sole agent for stressful procedures requiring minimal sedation, like voiding cystourethrograms or cystometrograms. Midazolam's amnestic properties result in anti amnesia. In so doing, patients are often not able to recall specific events following midazolam administration. It is a poor hypnotic agent, however, and usually not sufficient as a sole agent for deep sedations. Midazolam has general muscle relaxant properties. It is excellent as an adjuvant for other sedatives. Following intravenous administration, clinical effects are seen within 30 seconds with peak effects in about two to three minutes. Respiratory depression is the most significant adverse event, particularly if administered rapidly or with other sedative drugs like opioids. The synergistic effects of midazolam and an opioid increase the risk of respiratory depression when these agents are used together. Mild cardiovascular depression may occur, but is usually only clinically significant in patients with underlying hemodynamic instability or hypovolemia. Dosing is age-dependent, with younger children typically requiring larger doses. The key is to titrate midazolam to clinical effect with additional intravenous administration every two to three minutes, typically at half the original dose. Due to its water solubility, it is highly compatible with other drugs. Intravenous midazolam is particularly effective for stressful procedures, and if used for invasive procedures, should be combined with an analgesic agent for its anxiolytic and additive or synergistic effects. Midazolam is also commonly administered By non-intravenous routes, nasal administration involves direct absorption to the blood vessels from the nasal mucosa, and therefore has a faster onset than other non-parenteral routes. The nasal route is not subject to first-pass effect. Its usual doses are 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram, with a maximum dose of usually 10 to 12 milligrams. Desired effects occur usually within 5 to 10 minutes. Rectal administration is possible, though often not used in dose ranges similar to oral administration. Time to onset of action may be a bit faster than oral. When administered in the distal rectum, first-pass hepatic metabolism is minimized. Typically, rectal midazolam is not well-tolerated in children over three years of age. Finally, oral administration is very common. A dose range of 0.3 to 0.75 milligrams per kilogram a maximum of 20 milligrams is most common. Onset is slower than nasal and takes approximately 20 to 30 minutes. It is usually well accepted by children despite the bitter taste, which may be reduced by having a child drink water immediately following administration. Non-parenteral routes can be particularly effective for stressful procedures, where the patient is required to be somewhat awake and cooperative. In children undergoing voiding cystourethrograms distress behavior was compared to children receiving oral midazolam at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram to placebo. Oral midazolam resulted in a reduction of serious distress compared to placebo by almost two and a half times. Of note, four children receiving placebo exhibited panic behavior and were unable to complete the study, whereas all children receiving midazolam were able to successfully complete the VCUG. Midazolam has widespread use as a pre-medication. In summary, of 30 randomized controlled studies evaluating midazolam as a pre-anesthetic medication, separation anxiety and induction anxiety were significantly reduced. Of note, midazolam premedication potentiates the effect of opioids and propofol during anesthesia. Nitrous oxide is an old drug given new life as a sedative agent. It has well over a century of use, predominantly as an adjuvant gas with general anesthesia and as a sedative in dentists' offices. It is a colorless and odorless gas, commonly referred to as laughing gas. It exists as a gas at room temperature and pressure. Nitrous oxide is typically administered via face mask or nasal mask in concentrations between 30 to 70%. Effects are dose dependent. At concentrations less than 50%, nitrous oxide is considered a light sedative, resulting in minimal sedation, in which the patient is aware of their surroundings and follows directions. Nitrous oxide has both anxiolytic and amnestic-like effects, resulting in a sense of well-being in which time feels distorted. At higher concentrations, nitrous oxide has some analgesic effects. Note, deeper sedation may occur with concentrations of nitrous oxide greater than 50%, when nitrous oxide is co-administered with other sedative agents. From a pharmacokinetic standpoint, nitrous oxide has an extremely rapid onset of action due to its low solubility in blood and fat and fast equilibrium between the alveolus and capillary. Onset of action is within 30 seconds with peak effects in less than five minutes. Following discontinuation, complete recovery is noted within five to 10 minutes. Nitrous oxide does have a number of undesirable effects, however, all of which can be prevented or significantly reduced by using it properly. Nausea and vomiting can occur in up to 5% of patients and is both dose and time dependent. It is more likely to occur when nitrous oxide is administered for greater than 15 minutes at doses of greater than 50%. Agitation and dysphoria can also occur and may occur in up to 1% of patients. The greatest clinical concern when using nitrous oxide is its ability to diffuse into a closed space and increase either the space's volume or pressure. This occurs because nitrous oxide replaces nitrogen in closed spaces and diffuses in faster than nitrogen diffuses out. Trapped gas under these circumstances either expands or increases in pressure. Consequently, contraindications for the use of nitrous oxide would be any patient in which a closed space exists, and expansion or pressure in that space is contraindicated. Examples of clinical situations in which nitrous oxide is contraindicated include pneumothorax, intestinal obstruction, pneumocephalus, recent ocular surgery, and emphysema. Finally, because nitrous oxide rapidly diffuses into the alveolus following discontinuation, oxygen may be diluted out in the alveolus resulting in hypoxemia in the absence of delivering oxygen. Consequently, oxygen should be administered for up to five minutes following discontinuation of nitrous oxide. Freestanding nitrous oxide machines are now readily available and very easy to use. Components of the freestanding nitrous oxide machine include an oxygen source, either from a wall or a tank, a nitrous oxide source, either from the wall or a tank, a scavenging system for removal of nitrous oxide from the environment, a nitrous oxide oxygen flow meter, a nasal hood or mask, and a reservoir bag for the gases. The use of nitrous oxide for a number of different types of procedures from stressful to invasive has been well described in the literature. In experienced hands, nitrous oxide can be successfully used to place IVs, perform Botox injections, conduct voiding cystourethrograms, laceration repair, lumbar punctures, or joint injections. Sedative analgesic agents are sedative drugs that are predominantly used to relieve pain and alter perception of nociceptive stimulation. While considerably different in their mechanisms, both the opioids and ketamine have these properties. Of the opioids, fentanyl is probably the most commonly used opioid for pediatric procedural sedation and will be the one discussed in this lecture. Fentanyl is a potent synthetic opioid agonist and the most commonly used opioid in pediatric sedation. Its predominant action is analgesia, though usually with mild sedative effects. Fentanyl does not reliably produce amnesia. It is best given slowly over one to two minutes. Fentanyl's onset is in two to three minutes with peak effects in four to five minutes. Its duration of analgesia is about 20 to 30 minutes. Undesirable effects include respiratory depression, particularly when given rapidly or with other sedative agents. Chest wall rigidity is a relatively rare adverse event typically seen when fentanyl is administered very rapidly or in large doses. Consequently, fentanyl should be administered over one to two minutes. Nausea and itching may also occur. The mechanism is similar to other opioids. Other opioid agonists have very similar pharmacodynamic properties. Usual doses of fentanyl are 0.5 to 2 micrograms per kilogram, with 1 microgram per kilogram being a common dose. As mentioned above, fentanyl should be administered over 1 to 2 minutes. Repeated doses, typically 1 half the original dose, can be titrated in every 3 to 4 minutes. Indications for fentanyl are painful procedures. Administration with a benzodiazepine, particularly midazolam, may be effective in treating pain and discomfort during the procedure due to synergistic effects. These effects, however, can also worsen respiratory depression. Consequently, one of the drugs may be best given at one half the dose. Ketamine is a phenylcycline derivative drug commonly used in pediatric sedation for both its sedative and analgesic properties. Ketamine's mechanism of action is through a blockade of the N-methyl-D aspartate receptor, resulting in a dissociative state. This state is unique among commonly used sedative drugs and resembles a cataleptic state with nystagmus and open eyes. Ketamine has a high lipid solubility that accounts for its rapid onset of action, large volume of distribution, and high metabolic clearance. Ketamine's clinical effects are dose-dependent. In adults, anxiolysis occurs following a small dose of intravenous ketamine at 0.1 mg per kilogram. Slightly higher doses result in analgesia and antigrade amnesia, not unlike that seen with benzodiazepines. At doses of 0.5 to one milligram per kilogram, patients experience perceptual changes in sight, sound, and tactile sensations. Dissociative sedation can occur at this dose range as well. At higher doses, the patient enters a cataleptic-like state and becomes disconnected from the procedure. General anesthesia occurs at doses typically greater than 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Ketamine has a number of other desirable effects, including less respiratory depression than opioids and better preservation of upper airway reflexes. Ketamine results in an increase of both blood pressure and heart rate due to increased central sympathetic outflow, despite its intrinsic negative ionotropic effect. Intravenous ketamine has a very rapid onset of action due to its high lipid solubility. Onset of effects occurs within 30 seconds with peak effects within two to three minutes. Once the desired effects are achieved, ketamine has a duration of around 10 to 15 minutes. This state, the ketamine window, is characterized by the patient being in a trance-like level of consciousness, disconnected from the procedure with nystagmus and increased muscle tone. Painful procedures can be conducted during this time. Ketamine has a number of undesirable clinical effects that has tempered enthusiasm for its use. Yet in experienced hands, many of these effects can be easily prevented or reduced. Neuropsychiatric phenomena, including uncomfortable thoughts and visual hallucinations, are more common in older children receiving high doses of ketamine. Ketamine should be used cautiously in any child with a psychiatric history. Emergence phenomena can also be reduced if not prevented by educating the patient beforehand about the effects of ketamine and encouraging them to have good dreams and thoughts. Benzodiazepines may or may not reduce emergence phenomena. A rise in heart rate and blood pressure of 10 to 15% is not uncommon and usually clinically insignificant. Yet ketamine should be used cautiously in any child with underlying hypertension. Benzodiazepines, propofol, and dexmedetomidine are helpful in attenuating the cardiovascular response to ketamine. While laryngospasm is quite uncommon, occurring in only 1% of patients, it is one of the greatest concerns when using ketamine in otherwise healthy patients. Smaller doses of ketamine may reduce the chance of laryngospasm. Nausea and vomiting are not uncommon, occurring in around 5 to 10% of patients. Use of ondansetron has been shown to significantly reduce this adverse event. Ketamine is particularly effective for brief invasive procedures like invasive oncology procedures and fracture reductions. Indeed, in medical environments with limited resources, ketamine has been used as the sole agent to perform various surgical procedures. Dose ranges from 0.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram, with 1 milligram per kilogram being a common dose. Ketamine dosing is age-dependent, with younger patients requiring higher doses than older children. Titration of half the original dose every two to three minutes is usually satisfactory in maintaining patient comfort. While some practitioners will routinely use benzodiazepines, for example, midazolam with ketamine to reduce emergence phenomena, the effectiveness of midazolam for this purpose is not clear benzodiazepines probably do help in reducing the muscle tone increase sometimes seen with ketamine. Atropine, or glycopyrrolate, can be used to reduce secretions sometimes seen with ketamine. Some studies suggest that atropine may actually reduce the incidence of nausea and vomiting as well. Ketamine can be given by a number of non-intravenous routes. Oral ketamine is likely to be the most popular non-intravenous route and can be used for stressful and painful procedures that may not require an IV. Note that when non-intravenous routes are used to give ketamine, recovery time may be prolonged, particularly when using the oral or rectal route. Intranasal ketamine is similar to IM administration in the onset of action and duration of effects. Note that deep sedation may occur by any of these routes. Thus, when using non-intravenous routes to deliver ketamine, plans should be in place to rapidly place an IV should the patient become deeply sedated. Sedative drug combinations are commonly used to take advantage of the additive or synergistic effects the drugs may produce when given together. Note that while synergy confers an advantage in achieving desirable drug effects, the undesirable effects will also increase. For example, combinations of opioids and benzodiazepines elicit synergy for sedation, analgesia, but also for respiratory depression. Consequently, when using two drugs together, it is wise to begin by using smaller doses of one or both drugs. Common combinations of sedative agents used in procedural sedation include opioid benzodiazepines, opioids and propofol, and ketamine propofol. The combination of propofol with fentanyl for invasive oncology procedures in children was shown to be safer, with faster recovery times and better patient family satisfaction than propofol alone. Of note, propofol doses required for the procedure were significantly less when combined with fentanyl. Similarly, a propofol-ketamine combination proved superior to ketamine alone in regard to faster recovery and patient satisfaction for fracture reduction in the emergency department. Efficacy and safety were similar between the two groups. For burn care, propofol-ketamine was compared to propofol-fentanyl. Similar safety profiles were noted between the two regimens However, superior comfort was noted with the ketamine regimen. Finally, in pediatric IR, the combination of propofol fentanyl and ketamine proved to be superior to propofol fentanyl in regard to fewer adverse events and total dosage of propofol required.
1: In conclusion, achieving and maintaining the therapeutic window is the key to safe and effective sedation. Knowledge of the drug's pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic profile is necessary to achieve the highest quality sedation environment. Determination of the type of procedure with regard to the expected amount of pain and degree of immobility required is essential in choosing the most appropriate sedative or sedative drug combination. Finally, in some circumstances, combining sedative agents may result in a safer and more effective procedural sedation. Caution should be used, however, when combining drugs where synergy may occur in regard to adverse events.